Well, brethren, as Mr. Ames mentioned, the work is moving ahead. We're very grateful for that. In spite of any of our illnesses, God is blessing the work, and we had a wonderful year last year financially. We're having a very uh, low income so far this year. We're minus 12%, but that's not strange. It's just that we're in a terrible financial bind as a nation, and uh, often we start out January low, and then it picks up as you go along through the years. So we hope it's that way now. But we do need to be praying for the work. We're having wonderful TV responses, and as you know, we're having very good go-tos. I add them up whenever Josh wins, and I pick out the last four months, and every four months compared to the four months one year ago is always quite a bit more. So we keep getting more and more people asking about uh, the church. Brethren, let me ask you a question here. Do you personally have a deep relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Don't just listen, just ask yourself that question as I'm talking. Do you personally have a profound relationship, a personal type relationship that you feel is personal, that you know Him, you talk about Him, you walk with Him, He's very real to you? You don't need to raise your hands, of course, but let's ask ourselves that question uh, sincerely because this is a vital key to our life today and to eternal life in God's kingdom. So let's see what the Bible actually talks about in this relationship. And I can't even begin to cover it all, but I want to give you some key things to think about along this line because it's something we do need to emphasize uh, an awful lot more. And I intend to do that in the uh, months and years ahead. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. And let's turn to chapter 2. 1 Corinthians. Here is the Apostle Paul, the Apostle God used to work. He said he worked more abundantly than they all, and he certainly did. He raised up more churches, did more, and God used that man powerfully. And he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech. He was not apparently a great orator. Everything indicates that Apollos came along who had been trained in oratory and maybe others had greater oratory than Paul. Paul was not a great orator. I didn't come with that kind of thing or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, that was the thing he emphasized over and over and over because these Greeks were all into philosophy and thinking about all kinds of philosophical things and he tried to pin their mind down that the one who had been with God from eternity, the second person in the family of God, the Word, the Logos, emptied himself. As it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, it should be translated, emptied himself and came into the human flesh and was willing to die. The Creator, God created all things by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3, verse 9, and, of course, John, the first chapter, John 1, verses 1 to 5, and many scriptures tell us that. God created all things by Jesus Christ. He who had created the world, created the entire cosmos, created us in the image of God, He came here in the human flesh and died for us and gave His life to reconcile us to the Father. And He is our Savior our living head, our merciful high priest at God's right hand, 
and our coming king to rule over this earth and bring a kind of peace and joy, boy, the world is crying out for that now, as you know, more than ever. Having that kind of government. And so we're looking forward to that, and that is our message. But anyway, that's the message of Christ. But it involves Christ. So he talked about Christ continually. He preached about nothing but Jesus Christ and emphasized that. So that shows how Paul felt about it, and God inspired that to be put in the Bible. Now turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts chapter 2 at this point, brethren. And I want to uh, have you turn with me at this point then uh, to the fourth chapter, Acts 2, and beginning in verse 7. Acts 4, I mean, beginning in verse 7. Here the Sanhedrin actually got the, uh, uh, all the Jewish leadership got the apostles in front of them and uh, after the healing of this man, and they were jealous, of course. And verse 7, when they set them in the midst, they asked, by what power, by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, of course, Peter was the leader at that time, and you read the first half of the book of Acts, there's no question about that over and over. He's the one that gave the first sermon. He's the one that confronted Ananias and Sapphira. He's the one that gave these basic messages and did virtually everything like that. He's the said, then rulers of the people, elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name, see there's tremendous power in that name. But again, brethren, we have to understand the word name doesn't just mean uh, Jesus Christ or Jesus Christo or the way various sounds and sounds in various languages. That's not the point. It's the authority to know who the true Christ is and walk with Him and have Him guiding you and speaking in His authority and doing things in His authority, which means within His will and so forth. So that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man stands here before you whole. That's why he suddenly jumped up and just jumped walking and leaping into the temple, this man who had been crippled from his mother's womb. You know, Peter and John were coming up, and here was this crippled man sitting there, if you remember, and uh, expecting to receive something. He was a beggar. And Peter said, silver and gold have I none. That's what he was asking. He didn't ask for any healing. He didn't know about that. But he said, what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And the man jumped up. He didn't slowly get over it over the next six weeks or six months. He was healed right then, powerfully, to show the power of God. And so it was a very miraculous thing to show them the power of God at the beginning of the church. By him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. And brethren, most of you are not confused on this, but remember this sermon tape does go out around the world, as you know, to our brethren, and we have many new people coming in. And so I want to say to reinforce this understanding among all of us, please don't ever get confused by this world. Try to think again. What did the Bible actually say? If you can prove to where you know and know that you know, that's a key thing. There is a personal God and the Bible is His inspired revelation from God and the Bible says what it means and means what it says. If you can just get those two things straight. 
Just those two things, the truth about God, the truth about the Bible, and then believe the Bible. As you see the Bible, you know, they're confusing verses sometimes. You can ask your ministers about it, and we can show you other scriptures. Let the clear, plain scriptures interpret those that are not so plain and get, of course, the original Greek and the original Hebrew and the context and all those things. And you'll find in that way the Bible does not contradict itself ever. I mean ever, ever. If you think it does, you come to me and we'll talk about it. I may, of course, hit you with my cane, but I don't have my cane up here. I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> so don't be afraid to come to me. That's what I'm kidding about. Anyway, none of us will, will bite you if you ask a question. We're glad to answer your question. If we can't answer you right now, then we will try to find the answer because we don't always have every technical answer. We're not all walking, talking Bible encyclopedias, and I think you know that. But at any rate, the Bible does not contradict itself at all. Jesus said in John 10, uh, and I think it's verse 35, the Scripture cannot be broken. The Scripture cannot be broken. Not one Scripture cannot break or contradict another, and it does not. But at any rate, the world is always saying, well, there's different ways to salvation, and there's all kinds of stuff going on. There is no salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ is the way into the kingdom of God. It is the way to have your past sins forgiven, to be reconciled to God. He was God in the flesh. And He died for you. And brethren, we want to have a profound appreciation of that as the Passover approaches. We'll be preaching sermons. Don't just turn off your mind. Don't be afraid of a little emotion. I'm not trying to whip up, I don't want any Pentecostalism here, but it's not wrong to have a deep feeling about the fact Jesus did die for us. He suffered horribly, and He was willing to go through that and to come down from heaven to let these little ants down here on this earth. He calls us worms. David said, I know I'm but a worm. And uh, God said, you worm Jacob, I think, one time in the Bible. And that's what we are. Now, Churchill said, well, I know that we're all worms. But he said, I do believe that I am a glow worm. So <laughs> some think there were better worms than other worms. But at any rate, we're all worms compared to God. And uh, so we need to recognize how weak we are. And Christ came down here, He who was God, and let us worms, which we are by comparison to Him, torture Him, as you know they did, hit Him, slap Him, kick Him, curse Him, uh, you know, and then hit Him and say, blindfold Him and say, you know, prophesy who hit you, ha, 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 and smash Him again. And He must have had blood all over His face before they even scourged Him. Then they gave him the official Roman scourging, which often left a man dead, where they had this lictor, as it's called. That's the name where we get our word giving a man a licking. And uh, that lictor had this cat of nine tails with little metal cleats in it that would rip the hide right off a person. Sometimes men would die from the loss of blood and shock and that beating even before they were taken out to be crucified. So Christ was covered with blood before he ever even got out to the place for crucifixion. We need to understand what He was willing to let us little worms do to Him and have a feeling that He was our Savior. He was willing to go through that. He knew about that ahead of time. He knew what was going to happen. He described it before in the Old Testament Scriptures back in Isaiah 52, 53 and other places. 
So let's have a profound feeling about Jesus Christ and His willingness to give up glory and power and majesty and come down here to die for us so we could be His younger brothers, His younger brothers, so all of us could become full sons of God in the kingdom of God, the family of God, and be in the kingdom of God, the government of God, and actually the very family of God, to interact with God, to interact with Christ, to talk with them, walk with them, share things with them, do things, share projects with them, creativity, working, building cities and helping cities get straightened out, working together with them throughout all eternity. You think about that. That's a magnificent thing. He's made us to be His full sons. Maybe we could say sons and daughters. I don't know exactly how it's going to be. We've generally, the Bible says sons, and yet one time it calls us sons and daughters. And my wife has said she thinks even in the resurrection, women will still have a feminine spirit. That's true. You're, you ladies have a different type of spirit, a certain way of looking at things. But God can enlarge that and give men more of the kindness and the patience and gentleness of a woman and give a woman more strength and decisiveness and this and that a man has, but still have her same spirit. That same spirit coming from a woman is going to be made into a spirit being. So we will all be sons or daughters or sons and daughters of the great God throughout all eternity in the very family of God. And Christ made that possible. He's the key one God used, the Father used, to make that possible. And He was the one who was willing to say, Okay, Father, I'll do it. I'll do it. They conferred about it way back when. He was willing to give this up, the power and the glory He had out there. The one who said, Let there be light, and there was light. And all that emptied His glory and come down here to make it possible for you and me to be in God's kingdom. We want to profoundly appreciate that. Now, brethren... Uh, let's uh, go at this point, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. And here it shows a little bit more about who Christ was. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers all passed were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized Moses into the cloud and the sea. You know, as they came through that great wall of water coming across the Red Sea. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock, who was the spiritual rock that guided them, that protected them, that delivered them, that walked, watched over them, that fought our battles? That personality, that rock, was Christ. And I hope you'll read the article in the new Tomorrow's World magazine. Maybe you read it before. We've redone it, but... It's been a long time. Go back and read that. Who was the God of the Old Testament? I go through Scripture after Scripture after Scripture showing very clearly that God was Christ. He was God. and He was the second person in the family of God. He was the one that Abraham dealt with. Abraham didn't deal directly with Jesus Christ. God tells us back in 1 John 4.12, No one has seen God at any time or heard His voice. But remember how in Abraham had this personality come to him and talk to him, and he said, "Well, cannot the judge? Will not the judge of all the earth do right?" He knew he was talking to the judge of all the earth. Who was that judge of all the earth that Abraham was dealing with? The one who became Jesus Christ. 
You find after giving the Ten Commandments, it said, I am the eternal God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It says then in Acts chapter, uh, uh, that was in chapter 20 in, in Acts, I mean Exodus chapter 24, Exodus chapter 24, Moses and Aaron and 70 of the elders of Israel all went up and they had kind of a celebratory banquet. Read about it. Exodus chapter 24. And the God of Israel was there and they saw Him. They saw the God of Israel. Oh, really? Well, there you have your first Bible contradiction in my sermon. Because God says, No man has seen God at any time. But they had not seen the God the Father. And that's what Christ was talking about. No one has ever seen God the Father, but they did see the God of Israel. That God of Israel was Christ. Christ is the one who said, Remember the Sabbath day. He's the one who gave the Sabbath day. That's why these Protestant ministers don't like to talk much about that particular doctrine that Christ was the God of Israel because they know that comes right back on them. They say, oh, we've got to follow Jesus. Okay, if you're going to follow Jesus, what did Jesus do? He kept the seventh-day Sabbath. So you're going to have to keep the seventh-day Sabbath because He's the one that gave it. He's the one that kept it in the human flesh. He's the one that showed us how to keep it. He says, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath day. In Mark chapter 2, as you remember, verse 27 or 28. So, they don't like to admit that basic doctrine. That's a huge thing. They try to kind of do a little dance around it. I kind of been amused as a, you know, I've been a Bible teacher for years and read commentaries. And it's interesting how they'll come to places that show that. And then in the Bible commentaries written by all these very educated men, they'll say, well, the God of Israel, this or that. And they kind of hint, but they don't come right out and say it. They don't like to talk about it. <laughs> Other scriptures, they'll make it plain. They're not that one. They don't like that. That's hot stuff. That's the third rail, you know, as they say. They'll get burned on that one. Because if they admit that Christ was the God that gave the Ten Commandments, that Christ was the God of Abraham, Christ was the God of Moses, Christ was the God that David prayed to, my Lord, my God, my Rock, my Redeemer... He's the one David poured out his heart to. You know, it wasn't God the Father, it was Christ. And so when you understand that, these scriptures take on a lot more meaning. Anyway, that rock was Christ. And we want to again really understand that. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, these carnal men back there. Now these things became our examples, their lessons for us today, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And sometimes people in the church, nicey, nice society women or whatever, they oh, well, we wouldn't do that. Oh, yes, they would. A lot of the most nice society women are willing to kill their little babies before they're born and cause them to be extracted like out of a vacuum cleaner and murder them. And they think they're a whole high society and so forth. God says later, remember, in Deuteronomy 28, that at the very time of the end of the very worst trout, a part of the famine, that the woman who was so tender and so delicate, she would not let even her foot come touch the ground. She will eat the, ref the child that comes out of her body, and so on. He describes it very vividly. They're going to eat their own children. People are very selfish when the going gets rough. So there are examples here. Do not become idolaters as they were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, we know they weren't playing tiddlywinks. They were having sexual or drunken sexual orgies. 
And the Bible makes that clear when you put all the Scriptures together. Do we ever do that today? We've got all these sex clubs all over this nation with stuff like that going on every day. Nor let us commit sexual immorality or fornication, as the King James says, as some of them did. And what's God's opinion of fornication? And one day, 23,000 fell. 23,000 were struck down. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted or destroyed. I wanted to come here. Why does it say tempt Christ? Was Christ there? Yes! He was the God of the Old Testament, you see. They were tempting Christ back there in the Old Testament. He was their God. He was the rock. He was the God of Israel. Nor murmur, as some of them murmured, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happen to them as examples. They teach us the lessons we ought to be learning. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And we are even more at the end of the age than, of course, they were back then when when, uh, Peter said this, or Paul wrote this. Now all these things happen, excuse me, then we're going to verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So be careful, brethren. Don't think, oh, well, I attend church and I'm pretty good. No, we always need to examine ourselves. We all need to realize that we're weak. I am weak. I make all kinds of mistakes. And obviously I've been examining myself, praying more, meditating more. I fasted a couple times even during my my uh, terrible weaknesses. Oh, I'm already humbled physically, but it's still... And I tend to keep on regardless. And I think Mr. Uh, uh, Ruddles' very fine sermonette is very apropos, by the way. We as a church need to be on our knees. Mr. Armstrong said the church of God goes forward on its knees. And if we go forward on our knees and we're fasting, and we're fasting and praying and say, God, please really do teach us. Please help us to get close to you. Please help us to get close to true Christianity, to recapture the original Christianity, to recapture that profound feeling and love for Jesus Christ our Savior and for God the Father that we ought to have. This is something God wants us to do. So anyway, let's be sure we learn those lessons. Christ was the one there uh, with those people. Now turn back, if you would, to First John. This is near the end of your New Testament. Not the Gospel, but First, Second, and Third John. First John. And I'm going to read at the very beginning. First John chapter 1, verse 1. I've read this to you before. You'll get tired of this maybe, but don't ever get tired of it. I never get tired of it. It's one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. <laughs> That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Brethren, as I read this, I sometimes like to picture a great blinding light. We're not to picture a face or something, but a great blinding light. And that great blinding light was with another light even more powerful and magnificent, and that light became a human being and came down here and was walking around, and you may picture sort of in a vague way without putting a face. And here's some very husky, uh, healthy, virile, normal young men, not nicey-nice Sunday school teachers. 
Peter, you know, said, stay away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man when Christ performed a miracle there because Peter was a big guy and probably been in fights and cussed. And you read Peter about, we used to go to the same, let's not go to the same excessive dissipation like we used to do. Now, Peter had been in some barroom brawls or some fights and some stuff in the past. When you read his scriptures, you can tell that. He was a very normal guy, a big guy, strong guy. And the other apostles were fishermen, they weren't Sunday school teachers. They were big fishermen. They were out, used to the out of doors. And Christ was with them and they respected Him. He may not have been the biggest. I don't think He was the smallest either. He was just average. And He was not handsome. He said there's no beauty that we should desire Him. He was a normal looking Jew. He was so normal that Judas had to go up and kiss Him to point out which one He was. He looked so much like the others, you see. So anyway... Yet he was very, very dedicated and no doubt if you got to know him and saw a certain look of complete love and compassion and wisdom and, and everything else coming out of his, his eyes, his face, it was remarkable. But he didn't have a halo around his head or didn't act all nicey-nice. We have seen with our eyes Peter and James and John and Bartholomew and Philip, they were there, they interacted with him. How you doing, Jesus? Well, let me grab your hand, pull you out of the boat. And they said, well, no, I'll help you up the hill here. And they were passing back and forth the fish and the big loads of fish and, and the, the, the sleeping bags or bedrolls and food and stuff they were carrying around as they traveled around together. They may have butt each other, you know, like you do. Two guys will sometimes just purposely butt someone and then their shoulder, you know what I mean, an act of love. And uh, I used to do that all the time. Sometimes I do that even now to some of the men that I know better. I don't do that to the men I don't know so well. They might butt me back too hard. <laughs> but you come up and butt someone. If you do that in a loving way, they know you're trying to be friendly. And that's what they were doing. They did things like that. They horsed around with one another in a loving way. Our hands have handled. They touched him. They talked to him, walked with him, slept out under the stars with him night after night in bedrolls, sometimes in Peter's house, but sometimes outside apparently. Concerning the word of life, he had been the word, the logos, the spokesman, who said, let there be light, and there was light. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, that personality existed forever and ever with God the Father, and was manifested to us. Boy, that was a wonderful opportunity they had to interact with God in the flesh and to see Him in action day after day after day. Not nicey-nice, masculine, and yet serving, helping, encouraging, maybe telling little jokes or remarks that would encourage people, make them laugh and not put them down, and warm people and, and love them and encourage them and build them. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which is with the Father and was manifested to us. We have seen God in the flesh. As other scriptures said, Emmanuel was one of his names. God with us. Emmanuel. El is one of God's names, remember. That which we have seen and heard. He said, look, you the uh, people that were into this new type of uh, theology they were they were developing here. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. Christ is real. He's not some disembodied spirit or the various uh, uh, ideas that they were coming up with. We know Him. We talk with Him. We 
We handled him. We grabbed his arm and pulled him up and vice versa. We declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and we need to have fellowship with one another. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And brethren, that's the basis of our fellowship. As I've told you before, when I came to Ambassador College, the fellows that I was with, I probably would not have been good friends with back in Joplin High School. I really would not have because Herman Hay was, they called him Herman, Herman, I forget the bookworm or Herman the something was his nickname and he was very, very, uh, not odd, but he, well, some of my friends might have called him odd. I didn't think it was odd. I liked him and respected him. He was my first roommate, but he was studying and analyzing and I learned a lot from being with him. And I thank God for that. And Raymond Cole was, an old uh, Church of God guy from the Seventh-day Church of God, and his parents were among the Oklahoma farmers that moved out to the Willamette Valley, along with Mr. and Mrs. David Hinion, who became Mr. Hinion, one of the original board members of the Radio Church of God. And when the Dust Bowl hit, several hundred Seventh-day Church of God people moved out to the more uh, uh, moist valleys of uh, Oregon to get started again, you see. And they moved out there together. And then they had a whole bunch of Oklahoma Church of God people there together. And I got to know them a couple different summers when I was up there and so on. And so he grew up with his father, Otis Cole, and grew up in the Sardis Church. And and so he, he was different in certain ways, not weird, but I just would not have been like him in high school. And then Ken Herman was an old... Uh, we thought, oh, he was already 28 or 30 years old when I came to college. He was kind of an older bachelor, you know, and not married and, and, uh, all into science and, and, uh, he'd say, yeah, yeah. He was a Milwaukee or Wisconsin German and talked a little odd in German way and so on. But he, again, was very nice. And I came to love Ken Herman and like him and respect him. But all those guys, without me analyzing each one of them, I was the most normal one which also meant that I was the most carnal one. There's no one more carnal than me in the early student body because I'd been in dances and parties and and football teams and golden gloves boxing and stuff, and and I was normal, quote-unquote. I had more to repent of, of course, but I had grown up in the world in a way most of them hadn't in the same way. But I would not have been friends with them. But through God's Spirit there... We began to bond with one another. We talked about the Bible. We talked about the purpose of human existence. We talked about world news and prophecy. It became very real. And we had fellowship. Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, we fellowship with God. We fellowship with Christ. We need to get to know them and interact with them. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. Brethren, you all know that light is a symbol of righteousness and power and beauty and so forth. God is light. He's the ultimate light, the ultimate exemplification of everything that's good and right and beautiful and powerful and, and true. God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. Do you have darkness? Yes. Sorry about that, guys. (laughs) All of you do. And I have it. We have some darkness. God has no darkness. 
Christ has no darkness in that way. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, you get the difference there. It doesn't say you have some, because we all do. But if you walk in darkness, that's the point. You've got to grow in grace and in knowledge and become ever more like Christ until Christ is fully formed in you. As much as can be in the physical flesh, hopefully, or a great deal of it at least. Where Christ is formed in you. I'm just paraphrasing a scripture in Galatians here, where Christ is formed in you. But you want to be like that. Then you won't, you'll still have some darkness. I have some dark spots here and there that God knows about. And he's showing me more of them as time goes along. But all of you have them. But we don't walk in darkness. That is, if we're converted. Some of you may not be converted. If so, you need to examine yourselves and come to really realize that. That you have a mind that rebels against God. Maybe even rebels against my sermons and rebels against certain things all the time. If those thoughts are always like that, why? It means you have what the Bible describes as a carnal mind. A hostile mind that's always trying to judge and resist the Word of God, resist the way of God, resist the truth of God. So, anyway, but you've got to grow and walk in light. Walk in light. Don't walk in darkness. So if we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We have the truth, maybe, but we don't practice the truth if we walk in darkness. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, Christ, Christ is in that light perfectly. If we walk that way in every phase of our lives, think about it. If Christ were inside your human body, let's say if Christ were inside uh, the body of Mrs. Murray here, I've known her for about 35 years, so I don't think she'll mind me picking on her just as an example. And if she does, she'll hit me with a rolling pin later. I know her. (laughs) But if Christ is in her body then she will reflect Christ more and more in the way she treats other people, the way she treats her husband, the kind of food she eats, the kind of exercise she does, the way she does everything. Now, she may be slowing down because she's... I think she's as old as Jack Benny. Jack Benny said he was 39 and holding. So she's... (laughs) But anyway, so she doesn't do all the things you young people do. But you see what I mean. And each one of you men... If he, if Christ is fully formed in each one of you, let's say, in, in Bill Bomer, then Bill Bomer would be reflecting Christ in the way he would treat his fellow man, in the way he'd treat the others in the office, in the way he'd do his work, in the way he'd think about every single thing in this whole world and universe for that matter. You know what I mean? Even when he thinks about other planets of the future, he'd begin to have more and more of the mind of Christ. I'm just using that example so you kind of get the picture. Is Christ in you? We have to try to be that way. And none of us are that way perfectly. So if we walk in the light as He, Christ, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. Brethren, did it cleanse us perfectly the day we were baptized? No. It cleansed us in a general way at the beginning But we weren't made perfectly whole. He forgave our major sins and the wrong attitudes and helped us. But then we have to grow in grace and in knowledge later the rest of our lives. It cleanses us. It's a process that takes the rest of our lives 
to become like Jesus Christ. It is Christ's responsibility. Let me explain something. Obviously, um, my mind is somewhat from time to time on my problem, and I, you know, when you get something like I have, you kind of face your mortality, and so on. But it is Christ's responsibility to keep me alive until I have learned the lessons that He wants me to learn to be in His kingdom. <clears throat> now I hope He'll keep me alive even beyond that, if necessary, to help finish the work for a while. That's up to Him, and He knows what is best. He can heal me right now while I'm sitting here. He can heal me at the end of the sermon, tonight, tomorrow, any minute, any day, any hour. And I prayed that He would actually heal me dramatically. I think that would encourage a lot of you who are praying and brethren around the world and would kind of be a vindication, frankly, of this work in a certain way. You may have heard that some people were saying I was uh, had a heart attack and then my son Jim said there's some people out there that were the rumor was going around that I was uh, already dead and my 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 uh, wife and sons found my body. Well, they apparently found it, got me going again because here I am. <laughs> so there are all these rumors, and David's enemies were always rejoicing when he got sick, wishing he was dead. You see what I mean? If you read the scriptures, which I've been reading a lot of David's prayers, you see that, and they're just waiting for him to die. And this kind of thing. Mr. Armstrong had that too. And some people were already figuring out what they'd do with the money they, when they sold the college and talking about it. When he finally realized what was happening, then he took action. But at any rate, uh, that is normal human carnal conduct. And uh, so uh, he is responsible, though, to help us have enough time to be sure where we stand, you know, if He's called us in this life, He will give us enough time to finish the job, the work He's already started in us, the spiritual job of preparing us for His kingdom. And we've had some among us die, some of our older ministers, and without naming names, I'm sure that all those that I know were undoubtedly ready for God's kingdom or He would not have let that happen to them. They're probably there. They may be better off than we are. They are not going to have any more temptation and as the terrible disease said, that may be sweet, but maybe some of their children are dying and grandchildren and stuff. They won't have to worry about it. They will be resting, awaiting the resurrection. So we're still here. We have to keep working on ourselves. So if we have, say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, we all sin. If we confess our sins, that's the whole point of Christianity. Brethren, you've got to continually examine yourself and confess your sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, all of it over a period of a lifetime, of course. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us, because we are all sinners. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. This is to help you quit sinning. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And all of you young people and older people who haven't got this straight, remember that when you sin, when you have a problem, you have someone sitting at the right hand of God who loves you, who died for you, and if you're willing to repent and say, I'm really, really sorry, please forgive me. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Father, apply Christ's sacrifice to my sin. Let His blood cover my sin. Then He will do that. 
And He'll begin to help you overcome that sin and other sins as you grow in grace and in knowledge. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation, the payment for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. How do you know Christ? How do you know God? Because Christ is God. And I want to make that plain for the sake of argument. Some might say this is just talking about the commandments of Christ and we can keep some new commandments of Christ. No, we keep the commandments of God. If we say that we know Him, by this we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. You see, you may know about God I think the Pope and lots of these Protestant ministers and others who break the Sabbath and advocate war and all this kind of thing, they they know about God, but they don't know God because they don't keep the commandments. They don't even claim to. They know about Him, but they don't know Him personally. You know Christ, you know God, because you live that way of life and you experience the power of Christ living in you, the Holy Spirit living in you, and as you pray and you study, you meditate, you fast, you may shed tears and say, Father, clean me up and scrub me out, and you go through the crucible of genuine conversion, of growing and growing and overcoming and fighting yourself and putting down the evil and doing the good and growing, you come to know God in a way it isn't a matter of knowing about God. You know God. You're acquainted with God. He's helped you here, helped you there, helped you all through your Christian life. And you can deeply see and understand that in a way that others cannot do. So remember, that's a very important verse. And by the way, in case you wonder about what commandments he's talking about, remember they're all the same. But turn, keep your place and turn back to 1 John 5, if you would. 1 John chapter 5. It says here in 1 John 5, uh, verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Now this is not Christ, this is God. But of course this includes Christ. Christ is God. Christ said, I and the Father are one. We always understand that. So if we, uh, if we, we love God and keep His commandments, God the Father's commandments. Notice verse 3. For this is the love of God. What is the the love of God? Let's say Christ, the love of God. That we keep His, whose? God's commandments, plural. And His commandments are not burdensome. As you know, the world is always saying, Oh my, the Sabbath, how hard that is. Well, it is hard when you're first converted and you've got a job that makes you work on Saturday and this kind of thing. I understand that. But frankly, as a way of life, and when the whole world's doing it, what will be the easiest commandment to keep of all ten? The Sabbath. Because you've got to not hate, not lust, not whatever, all day long, every day. But only one day you have to keep the Sabbath, if you follow me. And I know once I was a student at Ambassador College, it began to dawn on me that was the easiest commandment to keep. Because as a young man, I might have had temptation all day long to be violent or to think violent thoughts or to lust or to do this or that. But only on Friday night to Saturday night sunset did I need to keep the Sabbath. When everyone else is keeping it, it's it's very easy to keep. 
His commandments are not burdensome. They would give everyone a day of rest, a day of uh, worship to God, a wonderful blessing if everyone kept it. So anyway, that's something we need to understand. Go back to chapter 2 now. 1 John 2, verse 5. But whoever keeps His Word, if you live by every word of God, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says he abides in Him. Who is he talking about? Christ. If you abide in Christ. Oh, I'm a Christian. He who says he abides in Him ought himself also to walk just as He walked. Who? Christ. How did Christ walk? Well, you read it very clearly. He kept the Sabbath day. He kept the annual holy days. He kept the Ten Commandments. He said, I have kept my Father's commandments. John 15, verse 10, if you want to write it down. John 15, verse 10, I have kept my Father's commandments. He did that as a way of life. It says He set us an example. First Peter 2.21, He set us an example that we should follow in His steps. It says the same thing here. If you say you're a Christian, you ought to walk as Christ walked. To keep God's commandments, to live that way of life, to love God the way He did, to love your neighbor the way He did, and to walk that way. That's the whole point. Christ must live His life in you. And again, brethren, it all goes back to this basic Scripture that I've often quoted, my favorite one-verse interpretation or explanation of true Christianity. Galatians 2.20 For the Apostle Paul was inspired by God, frankly, to summarize the whole thing. I'm crucified with Christ, Paul wrote, Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You see, Christianity is not just believing in Christ. Christianity is believing in Him, surrendering to Him, yielding to Him on a daily basis, and having Him through the Holy Spirit live His life in you. You see, so He lives His life in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote. Galatians, the book of Galatians. And if you're new and don't know that basic verse, make it a, make it a biggie. It's, a, it's an important verse. It's the best one verse definition of true Christianity in the entire Bible. So we do want to understand and I hope that we all can. So, he said, goes on then, Brethren, I write no new commandment, but an old commandment. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. The word. They had heard about Christ and they heard Christ. He's talking, frankly, more about the beginning of the gospel. And so he talks about that over in chapter 24. I mean, verse 24 here, notice. He says, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. That is the beginning of Christ's teaching. What did Christ teach? You know that. Back in John 7, you know, that you've got to keep God's commandments. He magnified them in chapter 5 and chapter 7 and, and chapter uh, 19, uh, Matthew 19, verse 17. He told the young man who asked him the way to eternal life, if you would enter into life, keep the commandments. So therefore, verse 24, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. You you will follow that way of life. It's not some new thing that Paul brought that did away with God's law 
or where everything else was changed around later. You follow that which Christ taught from the beginning. That is true Christianity. And Christ exemplified that, of course. Now turn back to John 15, if you would. The Gospel of John this time. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, brethren. And I want to catch uh, this here. Begin in verse 1. Here is Jesus Christ speaking personally. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. As I've said, if God prunes you, maybe He's pruning me now. I think He probably is. But if He's pruning you sometimes, He may let you get sick, or He may let you lose your job, or things go bad for a while, and He's humbling you. He's humbling you. He's fashioning you, molding you, working with you. It doesn't he doesn't? It's not that He doesn't love you. He may want to give you even more spirit later. He may want to give you a bigger job, a bigger opportunity, use you more powerfully. He prunes you that it that you may bear more fruit, you see, that you may bear more fruit after this pruning. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And brethren, that's the whole thing. You've got to abide in Christ. You've got to think Christ is my Savior. Christ is my elder brother. Christ is my high priest sitting at God's right hand. And say, Father in heaven, Lord Jesus... And picture, not a face, but just picture Christ being there. Have a relationship with that personality. Have a consciousness all the time that He's there. He's my Savior. He's my head, my Lord and my God. As you know, they said about Christ in so many places where it becomes very real to you. Abide in me, He said, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. Christ is the basic vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me, you've got to walk with Christ and have Him living His life in you, and I in Him, living in you through the Holy Spirit, bears much fruit. Many hundreds or thousands of human beings can be touched by you, by your prayers, by your help, if you're having Christ in you. For without me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, you can't accomplish anything spiritually. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather and throw them into the fire, and they're burned. You know, the chaff is just burned up. It's not going to be around forever. If you abide in me and my words... That's the key. My words. You study this book. You drink in of the Bible. You feed on it. My words abide in you, he said. You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. God will hear your prayers. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Brethren, He wants you to bear much fruit, not just the ministers. He wants every one of us to have a greater and greater impact through our prayers, through our example, our service to others, our impact on them, our tithes, our offerings, the direct things we do to help others and help the work, everything you can do. Do it. Do it zealously. Do it diligently. Give of yourself. Don't be afraid to give. Don't ever be afraid of giving too much. The more you give of yourself, the more you get back from God. 
So that's the thing that God wants us to learn and to give of ourselves to serve our fellow man and to serve God. Now you turn back to John chapter 6, if you would. And here's a passage again that I often turn to. It's so basic. John 6 verse 51. Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So Christ gave himself for us. He said a little later, verse 53, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Sounds like cannibalism. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Doesn't say you will have it, you have it already. Why? Because Christ is in you, you see. The Holy Spirit is in you. You have the down payment of eternal life through the very nature of God which comes in you. And I will raise him up. So you have eternal life, but you have to be raised up at the last day. You may die temporarily, but you have that while you're living. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, what does this involve? Abides in me, and I in him. That's the key. You eat and drink of Christ by letting Him literally live His life in you to change you from the inside out to where more and more you're reflecting every aspect of the character of Christ. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. He who feeds on me. Do you feed on Christ? This is the Word of God in print. Christ was the Word of God in person. But this book is the Word of God. This Word, this is is Christ in print. He who feeds on me. He is the Word. He was the Logos, the spokesman from the beginning to speak for God. And then He put His mind. This is the Old and New Covenant of Jesus Christ right here. His revelation. And so we need to understand that. He who feeds on me, constantly drinking into the Bible, How do you walk with God? How do you walk with Christ? You do it by studying this Word in a profound way, realizing this is the mind of God in print. Get that, brethren. Please get that deep down in your soul. This is the mind of God in print. And then you meditate on this. Think about it when you read it. Turn it over in your mind later. What does this really mean? And as you begin to study... And I don't do it perfectly every time, but I try to say, Father, just a 30, 45 second prayer. You just bow your head. Help me. Teach me. Guide me. Help me understand. You don't have to go off in another room and get down on your knees. If you're just in some other room, you could still quietly do it and, or keep the Bible open. People think you're muttering some words of the Bible or your, your lips are moving. <laughs> just you quietly pray and ask God for understanding as you begin to read the Bible. And then try to meditate on it later and understand it. And then, of course, later you want to pray on your knees most of the time, but you can pray off and on all day long in your mind to pray two or three times a day on your knees and cry out to God. Say, Father, help me understand. Give me the strength to live by every word of God. Please forgive my sin. Clean me up. Scrub me out. Help me overcome. Lord Jesus, live within me. Please send your Spirit within me. Help me, Father, to walk with you and walk with Christ and send Jesus to live His life in me through the Holy Spirit to talk that way, walk that way all day long, all day long. And then fast. 
and fast about once a month, as Mr. Ruddleson said, if you're in good health, and set aside the time where you're mostly taking the most of the time during that day. If you work all day long and do all the normal things, it's not going to benefit you. I sometimes take the whole day off, or sometimes I'll just work till noon, but the previous evening I'll eat light or nothing, and then I'll begin to study and pray the previous evening and have a longer prayer and study the next morning. And then if I come to work for three or four hours, I come home at noon, and then I'll I'll have the whole afternoon and evening up until sunset to pray and study and meditate and pray and study for four, five, six hours till sunset and concentrate on that. Concentrate on getting close to God. Say, Father, help me, humble me, teach me, guide me, fashion and mold me, send Jesus to live within me. That's how you walk with Christ. Then Christ will live His life in you. So He who feeds on me will live because of me. That's how you will live forever because you will have that relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's so important, brethren. It really, really is. And I hope all of us can profoundly realize that. There's nothing more important than that. Nothing. Jesus was the God of the Old Testament. And when David prayed, the Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel was was Christ. And the God of David was Christ. And many of David's psalms, as you know, were actually uh, a type of Christ. And David himself was a type of Christ. I'll just give you a little example of that back in Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Psalms are a wonderful book to read when you need encouragement. And I hope you learn to read the psalms regularly. And when you read David's prayers, brethren, think about it. He was praying to God, but he was also talking directly about Christ and to Christ quite often. That was David's immediate Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see how David was a type of Christ? This was David's prayer, but we see later Jesus saying those same words. Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. But you are holy who inhabit the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm. So this is not Christ speaking. Now it's David. David said, I'm a worm. I'm so weak compared to what I ought to be. And no man, a reproach of men, a despise of the people. All those who see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. Well, they, that partly refers to Christ, how they mocked Him and made fun of Him, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him deliver Him since He delights in Him. But you are He who took me out of the womb. You made me trust when I was on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. David certainly felt that, frankly, again and again. For about ten years, even though he was anointed by Samuel, he had to hide out and cry out to God over and over from the hills and caves of Judea. And Saul had him surrounded many times, and at the last minute God would deliver him over and over again. Help me, my God, deliver me, save me. And you can hear David crying out in all these situations. And yet some of those same things applied to Christ. He was surrounded... He was beaten up. They were torturing him. 
Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan. They have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths, raging and lowering lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. David had things like that, but David, when Paul Christ was hung up on a cross, you see, his whole body was just stretched out, pulled. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. How dry would his mouth be hanging on the cross with no nothing out in the hot sun, hard to even say anything. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands. This is quoted directly in the New Testament. They, they pierce my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look on and stare at me. So this is a prophecy written as you know, 1,000 years ahead of time about what happened to Christ. They divide my garments, which they did, and cast lots for my clothing. Remember, they did cast lots for Christ's clothing. But you, O Eternal, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Was David threatened with things like that? Perhaps so literally. But the, in principle applied to Christ too. You have answered me. Notice this verse all of a sudden. He's praying and suddenly God must have given a jolt of some sort right in his body or his mind. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the eternal praise him. All you descendants of Jacob glorify him. And fear him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. I don't care how sick you get, God will never forget you. Nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried out to him, he heard, My praise shall be of you in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the eternal. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the eternal. All the families of the nations of the Gentiles shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the ever-living ones, and he rules over the nations. So these are things that applied to Christ, but they applied to David. And as you read through the Psalms, you want to realize the connection. David was a type, a personal type of Christ, in a remarkable way. It is very encouraging when you read those uh, psalms with that understanding. Now, brethren, turn back to Philippians chapter 1, if you would. Philippians chapter 1. And uh, notice here, beginning in verse 18, he was showing how Christ was preached for wrong motives and good motives sometimes. But he says in verse 18, Philippians 1, verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He talks about being in a chain. He was in a Roman prisoner in a, in a hired house with a Roman soldier guarding him. And he had a ball and chain soldered between his ankles. He was a prisoner. But he said, I know it's going to turn out for good. And, of course, that's a wonderful spirit he had. Through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope 
that in nothing I should be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. He said, I don't care whether I die or live. Either way, I want to honor Christ. Christ bought me. He paid for me. He is my God. He's my Savior. He's the ultimate everything. And you young people, you've got to get a real hero. I know the kids want to have a rock star. They want to have some basketball player or something. That's tiddlywinks. We all need to grow up. The ultimate hero every one of us ought to have is Jesus Christ. It really is. And think about Him in that way. And He was all man, you guys. He was not a sissy. He went through hell, frankly. Over and over suffered and came back and trusted in God. He was not a sissy in any way. He was very bold and very brave and so was the Apostle Paul who served him. So he said here that he wanted to honor Christ according to my that I may with, not be ashamed but that with all boldness as always so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ. In other words, if I live then the purpose is Christ. Christ living in me and doing the work. But to die is gain. If I die, I'm, I'm walking with God right now, Paul must have thought. He certainly was. Then I can't lose it now. I just go to sleep and rest until the resurrection. That'd be a lot easier. Paul must have thought sometimes, I'm kind of tired of getting beaten five times by the Jews with 39 lashes. I'm getting tired of beaten beyond measure by the Gentiles. I'm tired of having him throw rocks at my head and lying in a pool of blood outside Lystra. And I'm tired of hanging on to a plank out in the sea for a day and a night and wondering whether I was going to live or not. I'm tired of being thrown in jail over and over again. I kind of like to rest. <laughs> you think about it? Really? I think he felt that way sometimes. I kind of like to rest and rest in the arms of Christ. So he had this very deep feeling more than some of you young people have to think about it to identify to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in my flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. I could maybe produce more fruit for the kingdom. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. He's kind of thinking out loud here as he wrote this, frankly. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, you see, humanly, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. As he wrote, he thought, really, I, I can serve more. I actually should probably stay around a little bit longer for these people and help them and build them and strengthen them. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. So he felt at that point then that he would live on and serve them, but he was willing to do either one. Do you have that kind of relationship with Christ? Again, think about it, brethren where you honestly would say, I would rather depart and be with Christ. Christ is very real to me. You know the old joke about the Protestants, and I don't mean to put them down. My relatives are Protestant, and I used to be Protestant. But they say, oh, how wonderful heaven is, and we just float around heaven with nothing to do. But when the time to die comes, oh God, save me! Take me to the hospital! I'm just scared to death I'm going to die! They don't seem quite so anxious to go to heaven, do they? <laughs> They're not anxious to get into heaven at that point. Because God is not real to them. 
when Jacob was about to die, remember, he got his sons all there. I don't know if I'll get to do that or not if I die. And of course, I hope I don't die and live on a few years and do more of the work. But I could picture getting uh, Mike and Jim and David and Jonathan saying, okay, guys, and Liz and Becca and say, well, you do do this and you work on that and you take care of this and you do that. And he gave them instruction and uh, then they left and he pulled up his feet in, in his bed and died. <laughs> he didn't say, oh, I'm afraid to die. He said, you guys take care of this. I'm going to sleep with my fathers. He had faith. You're gathered to your people. And that's the way they looked at it back then. So Philippians tells us some things and you ought to have that profound feeling of wanting to depart and be with Christ and be with Christ forever, whether soon or late, but to know that that is the ultimate, to be with Christ. Now, brethren, turn back to Acts 7, if you would. Here is a magnificent example of one who died as a martyr, the first martyr in a sense in the church, Stephen. He'd given this sermon. They grabbed him and he'd said some things they didn't like and condemned them. And near the end of his long sermon, Acts chapter 7, 51, he's confronting the whole Sanhedrin. He had the whole bunch of them there watching over him here. He said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the fathers did not your uh, prophets did not your fathers persecute and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you have been the betrayers and murderers? That didn't sound very much like a nice tea party here. He was rattling the teacups, believe me. You have been the betrayers and murderers. You preachers such and such and such and such, Dr. So-and-so, these preachers of the time back there, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And But being full of the Holy Spirit, here is this great servant of God, a young man ordained just as a deacon, but serving very quickly as an evangelist. He, he gazed into heaven and God gave him this vision and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. God gave him that because he had a relationship with Christ and he saw at that point, a great blinding being who was obviously Jesus at God's right hand. He saw that. And he said, Look, I see the heavens open at the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And so they were really upset. They didn't want to hear about this Jew, this Messiah. They weren't ready for that yet. And so they ran at him, stoned him, and laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He had a profound relationship with Christ. He must have walked with Christ, talked with Christ. He was not one of the twelve apostles' brethren. He didn't get to go around and see all the things Christ did all day long. He was a much younger man. I wish I could have been there. I wish you could have been there, that we could have seen Jesus personally do all things. But Stephen, there's no indication he got that. But because he studied the Old Testament, and he talked to the apostles, and he prayed to God, he prayed to Christ, he walked with God, walked with Christ, it became very real to him. A very profound relationship with the one who was the Son of God, his Savior, his elder brother, 
his merciful high priest, his coming king, who's going to come back as king of kings and lord of God, lord, the lord God of the armies of Israel, who's going to back us up and empower us in this work and help us finish this work. And if we walk with God, he will do that, brethren. So we've got to understand that. So think about it. Do you all have this kind of personal relationship with Jesus Christ? If you were to die in that kind of circumstance, would some of your last words be, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit? 